Folks, just while the boys and girls are heading out there, you could turn with me uh, to the Bible passages we're going to read today. We're going to read a couple of passages. Um, First is Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. And if you stick your finger in there and maybe turn to the second passage as well, 1 Corinthians 15 on page 1155. Mark 15 and 1 Corinthians 15. We started a, a new series uh, last Sunday morning that we're calling Cross Talk, uh, a series of studies looking at the cross of Jesus Christ, and where both of these passages help us to think further about, about Jesus and his cross. So let's, let's read the Mark 15 passage first, beginning to read there at verse 33. On the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, and then the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. Keep your finger in there because we'll have a a quick look at that passage in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15 on page 1155. We're going to read the first eight verses of that chapter. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. This is the word of God. We started this uh, new series last week, this series of studies in the cross of Jesus Christ, And we said that as we look at the cross, we can hope to learn more about God and ourselves, 
And also, as the series runs on, we'll, we'll do a different thing. We'll look through the cross at, at a lot of issues of life and see how the cross of Jesus Christ affects how we look at the world we live in and the lives that we live. So last Sunday, we thought about the first in our series, the foolishness of the cross. And this morning, we're going to talk uh, briefly about the cross and evil. Anyone who's taken any time to look at the Gospels and read there the accounts of Jesus' life would soon discover that Jesus and his father were very close. We noticed this um, in our series in the springtime when we studied together from Luke's Gospel. We saw there an account of Jesus' baptism. Do you remember Jesus' father's words to him at his baptism? He said, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. If you read on in the Gospels, particularly in John's Gospel, John just keeps talking about how the Father loves the Son and how the Son loves the Father. These two are close. They love one another. And if we had time to explore that a little bit further, we'd see that the Father and the Son have been in perfect community of love since before this world was even created. The two love one another. At the heart of everything that exists and before anything existed, the Father loved the Son. And the Son loved the Father. And that's why this passage in Mark chapter 15 is so powerful. And that's why the words that Jesus speaks from the cross are so uncomfortable and so challenging for us. When we have Jesus crying with his last words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The eternal love between the Father and the Son fractured. And we're, we need to think about that same question, the, the why question. If you ask the Apostle Paul, the great missionary and church planter, why Jesus had to die, he'd give you the same answer, I think, that he gives in the passage that we read this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. He says there, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. The death of Jesus is somehow connected to the sins of human beings, to our rejection of God and his goodness. That sin that expresses itself in the, the large atrocities, the terrorist attacks, the global greed, but also in those smaller acts that are seen in our lives on a daily basis and those hidden thoughts and uh, and angers and envies that we harbor. Jesus Christ died for our sins. So in a sense, that's the answer to the why question. Somebody asks you, why did Jesus die? You say he died because of our sins. Fair enough, Paul. 
But how? How does that work? How does the death of Jesus Christ do anything about my sin or the sin of the world? We're going to go on a bit of a journey today to think about the cross and evil, what the cross of Jesus Christ has to say about the evil that's in the world, what it has to say about the sin that's in my heart and in yours. The reason that Jesus dies is because of the place of justice in a world of broken relationships. Whenever somebody does wrong, whenever somebody's perpetrated, they must be held to account. I think sometimes we, we think of that as an old-fashioned idea. And we think that people should, who've been hurt should just be able to let things go and move on. But I want to show you from our contemporary culture that that's absolutely not the case. Think just back a few months to those recent final outcomes of the Hillsborough Inquiry. You remember the story. Back in 1989, 96 Liverpool fans crushed to death at the Hillsborough football ground. At the time, the blame for what happened on that day fell mostly, you'll remember, on the spectators. In British football culture at the time, there was a lot of violence at football grounds. There was a lot of behavior that, that you couldn't condone. So they were an easy scapegoat. The idea was that they were drunken, they were disorderly, and that's why this disaster happened. Now, that's a claim that the families from that first day, and right up until now, a claim that they have disputed vigorously. As we know by now, the strong and burning sense that they had, that they wanted justice, never quite left them. So they started a long process of seeking justice for those who had died. In 2012, uh, a definitive report from an independent panel finally concluded that the deaths were mostly due to multiple failures by the police and the emergency services and those who were in charge that day. Then the inquests began. In April of this year, we found that the 96 football fans were unlawfully killed. After two years of hearing evidence, jurors found that the then match commander, David Duckenfield, was responsible for manslaughter by gross negligence due to a breach of his duty of care. Finally, the truth was revealed and justice became possible. Whenever something goes wrong, justice needs to be done and seen to be done. That seems to be an important requirement for how life works. Justice needs to be done. The Bible teaches that we're the perpetrators. We're the ones who've done wrong. So in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's saying, God made us for a purpose. To know Him, 
to enjoy a loving relationship with him, to live for his glory in the world, we have done anything but. We've turned our backs on him. We've run away from him. We've failed to show his glory in a watching world. We've brought disgrace on his name. We've done wrong. We're the perpetrators. We've, we've sinned, to use the Bible's language. When something goes wrong, the perpetrator needs to be brought to account. Justice needs to be done. And a few chapters further into his letter, the Apostle Paul tells us what form that justice must take. He says the wages of sin, or, or the just deserts of sin, if you like, is death. It's a terrible thing to realize that we're guilty and to not know any forgiveness. To have a verdict hanging over us, knowing that one day we'll fall. Ian McEwan explored that theme in his novel, the, the book Atonement. Uh, which was a, a bestseller and a prize winner. And you maybe either read the book or got to see the, the film, uh, the film starring Kira Knightley. The central character in that story, Bryony Tallis, she makes a huge mistake as a young girl. Uh, she falsely accuses her sister's boyfriend of rape. And that charge that she makes leads to a prison sentence uh, as well as untold misery and unfulfilled dreams right through the remainder of the story. The book tells the story of Bryony's attempt to atone for her sins, to find forgiveness. And towards the end of the book, we find we're reminded how she's still carrying her guilt decades later, now as an older woman. In the author's words, all she wanted to do was work, then bathe, then sleep, until it was time to work again. But it was useless. And she knew it. Whatever skivying, whatever humble nursing she did, however well or however hard she did it, she would never be able to undo what she had done. She was unforgivable. Atonement. The restoring of a broken relationship between God and his people is one of the great themes of the whole of the Bible. In the Old Testament, we hear of the Day of Atonement, an occasion when the priest would bring a, a bull or a goat and would sacrifice it for the sins of the people. These sacrifices were the means of dealing with the sin of the people before God. Sins needed to be atoned for. And the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was geared up to making sure that that atonement happened. Jesus Christ came into that very Jewish world. He knew well that sins needed to be atoned for. And he understood himself, if you remember, in the Gospels, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to deal with our sins and to reconcile us to God. In a moment, we're going to think a little bit more about how 
God reconciles us to himself in Jesus Christ. But for a moment now, we're going to sing a, a song that draws us right there, right to the cross. We'll start by keeping our seats while the stewards lift this morning's offering, and then we'll stand for the remainder of the hymn. The hymn is, O to See the Dawn, the Power of the Cross. Isn't that just an incredible hymn? Retells the story of Jesus in a way that invites us to come and to, to experience the cross for ourselves. We're beginning to see here the importance of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the central place that it has in the story of the Bible. We've seen that Jesus understood himself as an atoning sacrifice, but I'm still not sure that we've answered the how question. How does Jesus Christ atone for your sins and for mine? I'm going to say two things just now. And I want you to concentrate. Normally my preaching is very simple. I like it to be that way. I can't do it any other way because that's who I am. But I just want you to really focus and really get these next two things that we're going to say about Jesus and his death on the cross. First thing we say is that Jesus died as one of us. Okay? Orthodox, true Christian theology has always said that Jesus Christ, who fully shares God's nature, also fully shares human nature. Don't ask me to explain that. I I don't know that I can. But today I'm just asking you to, to take that and to run with it. When Jesus Christ died, he died as a representative of the human race. Now, that's really important, and here's why. Whenever it comes to punishing sin, it's important that the person who's punished is the person who did it. Okay? Do you remember in the playground, something bad happened? You were brought into the classroom after lunchtime. The kid who did the bad thing got, got off, and you landed the punishment. How did that feel? Or that thing that happens in football tournaments. I don't think I saw it in the Euros. Do you know that thing where a player gets sent off for a second yellow card? But it's a case of mistaken identity. He never had a first yellow card. But the ref sends him off because he's punishing the wrong person for the crime. There's something a little bit like that at play in the death of Jesus Christ if we don't understand that Jesus Christ died as one of us. It's important that it's the perpetrator who pays for the crime. Now, here's the thing, and I think I've seen this more clearly this week as I've prepared this than ever before. When Jesus Christ died, humanity died. Humanity has paid the price for its sin in the death of Jesus Christ. He died as our representative. He died the one man 
for all of us. So the crimes, the big crimes of Hitler and Stalin, the terrorist atrocities that we live in with these days have been paid for. Our so-called smaller sins paid for. All the sins of humanity paid for because Jesus Christ, when he died, died as a human being for all of us. We've paid the price for our sins, but only in Jesus. So that's the first thing. Jesus Christ died as one of us. And he does that because he fully, he shares fully our human nature. But let's not forget the other half of that, the other thing that we said. He fully shares the divine nature. And that means a second thing. When Jesus Christ dies, he dies not just as a human being, but as the second person of the Godhead. When Jesus Christ died, God dies for us. Folks, I need you to go further into that than you maybe are used to going or than you've gone before. The cross isn't the moment when God the Father inflicts pain and punishment on some innocent third party. It's the moment when God, Father, Son, and Spirit bear together the abandonment, the suffering that we've read about in our passage today. If you're somebody who reads uh, Christian books, uh, you might have been aware of a controversy back in 2004 when a guy called Steve Chalk published a book, The Lost Message of Jesus. In it, he said a few things that would be controversial, uh, maybe stretch uh, evangelical Christian people. But he used one phrase that really, um, really forced the issue, uh, that really... Um, really created a distance between him and many of the people whom he had previously been in fellowship with. He described the death of Jesus Christ as cosmic child abuse. Maybe heard that phrase or, or heard about that uh, at the time. I can remember never understanding where he'd got that from. And I still don't. To me, it shows such a diminished view of the Trinity to say that the Father and the Son are somehow so remote that whenever the Father gives his Son to come and shed his life on the cross, when the Son willingly goes to the cross in obedience to the Father, that there's anything abusive in that. I never understood that, and I don't think I ever will. Because for me, the Trinity is Father, Son, and Spirit. The three together, the perfect community of love in all eternity. So when Jesus dies, God dies for us. Folks, we're nearly finished with our thinking about this this morning. Uh, a thing that I, I want to, to share that I found very helpful thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ is the cost of it. 
whenever people fall out over something trivial, and you'll know this, oftentimes, almost all of the time, a thanks, I'm sorry, is enough. That's fine for trivial, everyday fallouts. But there are things that happen in life where that is not enough. When a precious child is abused, when marriage vows are broken, when the love at the very heart of the universe that we've been talking about here this morning, when that is betrayed, then it's going to be costly to bring restoration to these relationships. In those circumstances, the reconciliation can't ever be cheap or easy. In those cases, the the reconciliation is going to be costly. You, You know how it works, don't you? When somebody hurts us badly, one of two things need to happen. Either I make the person pay by taking revenge on them, You've hurt me, therefore I hurt you. Or else if somebody's hurt us deeply, we pay by saying, I forgive. I give up the right to revenge. I give up the right to make you pay. I'll pay. I recently came across a simple illustration. I don't know why I'd never seen it before, but it helped me think about this a little bit better. It helps us understand the cost of the atonement, the cost of what Jesus did for us. Say for a moment that you owe me a hundred pounds. I'm just counting you quickly. One, two, three. I like it. It's good. So you guys, you you owe me a hundred pounds. If I forgive you that debt, no matter how wealthy I am, that costs me. Now you say, no, no, if you're a rich person, it doesn't cost you. It's only 100 pounds. No, that's not true. If, I owe you, if, if you owe me 100 pounds and I forgive you that 100 pounds, I need to use 100 pounds of my money now to pay the next electric bill or to pay the credit card or to feed and clothe my children. You see, I can't make you a hundred pounds richer without making myself a hundred pounds poorer. That's how it is with a real debt. If a debt's real, it has to be repaid. If I'm going to show mercy, then I have to pay the price. And that's why Jesus had to die. It's because God couldn't just simply say, forget It's because he chose instead to say, I forgive it. I forgive your sins, Christoph. The sins of this congregation. The sins of the world. I'm going to try and draw things to a close here for a second. Why is this all such a big deal? Why do we constantly keep coming back to the death of Jesus Christ. I'm going to guess that there are some people in the congregation today who are thinking, goodness, do they never stop talking about Jesus, about the cross, about his dying, about his rising again? Why is it so important? 
Well, here's why. It's because it's the very centerpiece of history. It's because it's the moment when we most clearly see who God is. Why would I say that? Well, here's why. The most profound kind of love is the love that costs us something. I think we all know that. People can do nice things for us. They can show love to us. But it's whenever people have put themselves out or whenever they have paid a great price that the love really begins to touch. So self-sacrificial love is the deepest kind of love that there is. And our God, we're told, is love. That's what the Bible tells us about him. That's how John describes him in his letters. God is love. So whenever we see the greatest moment of sacrifice the world has ever seen, Jesus coming from all glory to live a, a simple, humble, humbled kind of a life and finally to, to have a shameful, uh, painful death, that's the greatest self-sacrifice imaginable. And therefore, it's the greatest revelation of God. You want to know who God is? Then you look at the cross and you see there our God more clearly than ever. It's the deepest act of love, the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's the clearest picture of God. We get a wonderful illustration in a surprising place in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter novels. I don't know whether you've read them or seen some of the movies. As the various stories uh, proceed, you'll know that Harry becomes uh, aware, and we, as we read or watch, we become aware of his secret, the secret that makes him special, the thing that makes him able to defeat Lord Voldemort and overcome the forces of evil. On the night of the 31st of October in 1981, Lily Potter had sacrificed her own life in order to protect her son from the dark Lord Voldemort. And that act of sacrifice had placed Harry under a a protection, a magical protection, so that whenever Voldemort tries to kill him, the, the... the effort backfires. Harry's left with his scar and Voldemort uh, becomes a a bodiless being. It takes Dumbledore, the, the headmaster of Hogwarts school, to explain it to Harry like this. Your mother died to save you. If there's one thing Voldemort can't understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's leaves its own mark. Not a scar, not a visible sign. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. To have been loved so deeply... We've been looking at the cross today. We've seen how it's God's response to the evil in the world and the sin in our lives. 
friends, if you've ever doubted the seriousness of sin, then I'd encourage you to take another look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the lengths that God the Father went to to see atonement for your sins. If you've ever doubted the love of God for you, come again and look at the cross of Jesus Christ. See how God, Father, Son, and Spirit suffer the fracture of their beautiful relationship all for love of you. Folks, for this death of Jesus to be in any way effective in our lives, we we need to respond to it. I had an opportunity, uh, I closed with this very quickly, I had an opportunity just recently to talk to a, a gentleman as his, as his life was ebbing away in his hospital bed about the cross of Jesus Christ. And after a long conversation with him, we, we prayed together. He wanted to pray just to, just to respond appropriately to the death of Jesus to commit his life into the hands of the one who gave his life for him. It's a very simple prayer. It couldn't be more simple. Do you mind if I tell you what I prayed with him? These words. Thank you, Father God, that you love me. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross in my place. Please forgive me my sins. Now help me live for you. A lot of people in this gathering this morning know a moment in their lives or a time in their lives when they, that was the very posture of their hearts, when they were coming to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and asking him to to make effective the forgiveness of sins that he had won on the cross. Some people here today may, may never have done that, may never have had the chance to do that. But as I've spoken today and as I've read those words, maybe they sound like a prayer that, that you feel led to pray. What I'm going to do today, I don't want to pray any fancy prayer full of theology of the cross. I just want to pray that prayer again. I think for those of us, I, I, I first prayed this kind of a prayer, well, a while ago when I was a wee boy. But I'd like to re-pray that, just put myself back in that place. Maybe we'll all pray it together just now. And if, if you pray a prayer like this for the first time here today, uh, please, please find somebody to talk to about that maybe a friend you know who follows Jesus. Come and talk to me. I would be delighted. Come and talk to somebody else in, in leadership in the church who could maybe help you think about what you've prayed. Let's, let's pray this prayer together just now. Thank you, Father God, that you love me.
Thank you, Jesus, that you died in my place on the cross. Please forgive my sins. Help me now to live for you. Lord, we thank you that any one of us who prays this kind of a prayer with a sincere heart can know the joy of sins forgiven and a life beyond judgment, a life of full acceptance with you. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, and your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.